Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. <clears throat> Before we get back into the book of Isaiah, I wanted to just take a moment to highlight another one of our values. So uh, last week I highlighted one, uh, recreational. This week I want to highlight the value of being relational. Uh, so relational value says this, intentionally committing our lives to each other, following the example of our relational God. Like Christ, whether easy or difficult, we choose to love, to be in community, to invest in others, and to sacrifice our lives for family, friends, the community of faith, and the world. Now the reason I highlight this particular value is because I think it's vital to new community. That we be a kind of people that lean deeply into relationships with one another. In fact, uh, one of the parts of the phrase that I like the most is the phrase, we choose. It says, we choose to love, we choose to be in community, we choose to invest in others, we choose to sacrifice our lives. And honestly, I think relationships and the choices involved with relationships are the lifeblood of this community. And I would encourage you as much as you can to lean into that quality. Um, part of why I've been reminded of this is uh, recently I had some interesting conversations. One, with a, one is a friend of mine. Uh, he lives uh, in a much different place than this. And uh, he works in youth ministry. And the last year he has been detailing to me the amount of like agony and toxicity in his relationships with people on staff at his church. And um, just completely exhausted and worn out uh, and embittered and frustrated. And um, that's been sitting in the back of my mind. And then recently, Carter was uh, gone on a little uh, youth ministry learning cohort. And he goes on those about once every, I think, three or four months. And the idea is to learn more about youth ministry, learn more about his role in the church. And while he was on it, there was a group of youth pastors all sitting around in a circle. And the statement was uh, made, what is the most challenging thing for you in your ministry right now? And let's pray about it. Let's talk about it. Is there something that's really um, causing you angst or concern? And he said he sat there and one by one, Every single youth pastor said, honestly, it's my staff. Honestly, I can't stand my pastor. Honestly, I, I feel like I avoid people that I work with. One after another after another. And, um, man, I, it kills me to hear that. And part of why it kills me to hear that uh, is because I was on the marriage getaway uh, not too long ago. And uh, afterwards, I grabbed uh, coffee with someone and they expressed that uh, they watched Kevin and Julie and I and others kind of interact with one another on the retreat. And they said, kind of seems like you like each other a lot. <laughs> and I was like, well, is that a statement or a question? Because either way, the answer is emphatically yes. I feel so privileged 
I say that with the deepest sincerity to be on a team like we have. A group of staff and elders that absolutely love one another. I mean, I honestly consider them some of my deepest friends. We laugh together, we cry together, we go on adventures together, we spend time as families together, we get to do all kinds of things together. When we go on a retreat to plan and dream and pray for this community, there's never a single time that I'm like, oh, here we go. Every single time it's like, man, this is going to be fun. I wish more people could be involved in this. I wish we could add more people and uh, they could see what happens in these spaces where we laugh and enjoy one another. And it is honestly a deep joy to be locked in arms uh, with the people that uh, I'm on this team with. And I thought it was important to communicate that to you when we talk about this value. I would say that if we weren't living it out, there'd be no reason for you to live it out either. If we weren't trying to embody what it means to choose to love and to be friends with and to enjoy and to be in community and to invest, then there would be no reason for us to invite small groups to do the same, and there would be no reason for you to also lean into that. It's not always easy, I know that, within the community to lean into relationships, but I encourage you, it is a deep value of ours, and it will determine the value of this whole community we can love and lean into those relationships. So that's my encouragement and reminder of one of our values, and I encourage you to keep living into being relational. Speaking of relationships, I want to start by telling you a little bit of a story about my daughter. Uh, she uh, is full of spunk and energy, and uh, one of the things uh, that she has adopted, she doesn't know this, but she's adopted this phrase from Ice Cube. She doesn't know it came from Ice Cube in a movie about 20 years ago. But um, Ice Cube, 20 years ago, had this little off-putting statement to someone where he said, bye, Felicia. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it is this meme that kind of has resurfaced. And so whenever one of my kids is, like, telling her information she cares not to know about or is kind of giving her the business or telling her maybe what she could do or should do, or even if she's just involved in something else and thinks, why don't you leave me alone, she'll just go, bye, Felicia, right? And she says it with the perfect sass. She says it with the correct amount of disrespect. And while I should be concerned slightly about it, instead I just find it absolutely hilarious. I love it. And in fact, she'll start to say something to me, and then I'll repeat it to her. And... I was reading the Old Testament the other day, and if you've spent any time in Job, there's this one section in the book of Job that I find to be like the best by Felicia moment that God ever gives humanity. And it's this moment where he seeks to put us in our place. He seeks to remind Job and his friends kind of what's up. Uh, Job and the friends are kind of discussing, debating. Job is like, where's God? He's never around. I feel like he's abandoned me. His friends at first start to comfort him. Then his friends start to accuse him. They're having this little back and forth. Things aren't really ideal. And then God shows up in the story and has this moment where he says this in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. That means stand up and be a man. I will question you and you will answer me. 
So right after Job changed his pants, the rest of the story goes on, right? Because that's a moment where you're like, what just happened? God steps in and says something like just really awe-striking, like challenging, like who are you? Who do you think you are? And then he goes on to say, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And then he goes on to say, I've put the whole world on its foundation. I've put the seas into place and I've told them where they should go. I've commanded the morning every single day to rise and give dawn and night. Who are you again? It's like one of those moments, right? Where he's basically saying to Job, have you done that? And Job is emphatically has to answer, no, I have no clue what I'm talking about, right? And I bring it up because Isaiah has one of these exact same kind of moments with God. We saw one a little bit uh, last week where Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, where he's just awestruck about how set apart and different and unique God is. But then there's this moment that I think is apropos for our particular Sunday, Palm Sunday, being a day where we celebrate the magnitude and the majesty of our Messiah who comes into town riding and is celebrated and we get to think about the awesomeness of our God. And there's this moment in Isaiah where he, and I think by um, just association of us as readers, we get to pause and consider the greatness of God. In Isaiah 40, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. It'll be on the screen as well. God says this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are his beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare to him? And obviously, that rhetorical question is answered with no one. There's no one that you can compare God to. There's nothing that could possibly describe him. I want to take just a moment to think about that first little phrase in verse 12 that communicates, I think, so much that we perhaps even fail to read between the lines. In Isaiah 40.12, he starts off and says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He's saying that God could, in theory, just simply measure the entire quantity of all of the water in the world in the palm of his hand. If you just take for a moment your palm and put it out and, and cup it as if you were going to hold a couple thimblefuls of water, it is in that space 
that it is estimated that there's somewhere like 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth, covering about 71% of all of the earth's surface, not including the glaciers. Imagine for a moment holding in your hand, I'd even give you two if you needed it, right? 326 million trillion gallons. It's insane to think about the magnitude of God. It even says in that same verse that he's marked off the heavens with a span. For those of you that don't measure much by spans these days, it is yay big, right? It is the distance from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky, which on average is around nine inches, right? It's basically God is just holding up a small measure and saying the entire universe, that's how I measure all that you see, comprehend, know, or could imagine in just a small bit of space. The size of our universe is absolutely awe-inspiring and so, so complicated. So complicated, I couldn't describe it, so I tried to get some other folks to at least give us a little context as to the magnitude. The Earth to the Sun is a mere 93 million miles. If the distance from us to the Sun was represented by the thickness of an index card, okay, meaning 93 million miles right here in my hand, that thickness. The distance to the nearest star, you would stack index cards on top of each other, 71 feet high. And you'd be at the first and nearest star. Remember, each index card of the 71 feet representing 93 million miles each. The known universe if we were to take what we currently know of the universe and were to stack it on index cards, the index card stack would be 31 million miles high, with each index card representing 93 million miles, meaning the magnitude of the current known universe is close to 300 million miles of index cards times by 10,400,000 index cards in a mile times by 93 million miles per index card. And here's the crazy thing. In that space, there are somewhere from 200 billion to 200 or 2 trillion galaxies in that space. Peter Enns says this about this idea. Smart people tell us that the universe is about 46 billion light years across. Light travels about 5.87 trillion miles a year. Multiply that by 46 billion. And you come up with a number I can't even say. According to my extensive 10-second Google research, the numbers before the E are to be multiplied by 10 to the 23rd power. It also seems that the universe is expanding at an increasing rate. Just pause for a second on that thought. Everything we just described is still expanding, but quicker. And if it weren't enough, we are now told that there may be more than one of them. 
Many of you this last week probably looked at this same shadow of a picture that looks like this. Right? The black hole at the center of M87. Those of you not super familiar with M87, elliptical galaxy, some mere 55 million light years from Earth. If you're wondering how far that is, here's a statement that gives you a little context. The light from the M87 black hole has to travel for 60,000 years through its own galaxy, then for 55 million years across interstellar space, and then we see it. And we're told by the people who aimed about 90 million telescopes at that space that the black hole is 6.5 billion times the mass of the sun. For those of us who have no clue about the mass of anything, okay, I'll give you a little reference. The mass of the sun is quite a bit bigger than the mass of the earth. The mass of the Earth, you would take one million Earths and put them inside of the sun. So one million Earths, drop them in the sun. Then you take that sun with a million Earths and drop it in 6.5 billion of those black holes. What? (laughs) If your brain doesn't currently hurt like mine, then you're not beginning to start to grasp the magnitude of God. It is absolutely mind-numbing and crazy. And so this, the question I have this morning about that is, so what? So what? So we know some truth about the universe. We know some truth about God that he is majestic and crazy, so much so that we'll never be able to understand the sheer magnitude of him. But what is that good for? What does that do? How does that change your life? What impact does that have? If you know a truth, what is it supposed to do for you? The scriptures make this cool claim that if you know a truth, the truth will set you what? Free. Truths aren't meant to confuse you. They're not meant to bind you, to make you more fearful, to bring concern or doubt. They're meant to give you freedom. You hear a truth and it should like well up within you that, oh wow, more freedom. So what I want to do this morning, instead of giving you more information or detail about the passage, I want to spend the rest of the time on the application of that. If you have a truth, how do you begin to apply that truth to your life? Now, I'm getting my inspiration in doing this actually from the Bible, specifically Paul. I've often heard growing up, um, people would go, man, that was a really great sermon. Why was it a good sermon? We gave us so much information. Great. What's the information for? To be lived. In order to live it, you have to apply it, right? So in Ephesians, when Paul gives his sermon to Ephesus, there's six chapters First three are information-oriented, theological, details, right? Then he hits this point where he says, therefore, chapters 4 through 6 is all application. That means Paul's sermon to Ephesians, 50% of it, application. 
You go to Romans, his most theologically extensive book. Chapters 1 through 11, all the details. 12 through 16, all the application. The point is, if, if we want to be a church that actually moves forward in faith, not just new community, but across the nation and the world, 98% of the information, and then one question at the end this week, how would you apply that, is not application. It has to be ingested in a way that you begin to live it out. And so I want to try to encourage us with a few freedoms. If truth is supposed to give freedom, here's a few of freedoms associated with the magnitude of God. And at the end, what I'm going to ask is that you as small groups actually add to the list. These are just a few thoughts. There are many, many more ways to live into the magnitude of God. I want to give you a, a few freedoms. Freedom number one, freedom to be thrilled with the joy of always learning more of God. We have a unique freedom to abide in the wonder of always discovering more of God. That we get to learn of the character and the reality of God and to experience that in a way that will never be exhausted in a single lifetime. You could spend every moment of every day for the rest of your life and still would always be in a perpetual state of learning more about God, of absorbing more of who He is. That is why I believe when we get to eternity, it will be learning continually for all of eternity about God. That's amazing that we get the thrill or the joy of always learning more about God and still having more to apprehend. Recently, I, I told you I went on a little trip. I was coming back from the trip. We are driving in the van, and uh, I sensed that one of the tires uh, was a little low. I sensed because, like, I looked at it, and it looked low. Okay, that's, that's how I sensed it. And uh, so I get gas, and in the gas station, there was, like, a little... Uh, mechanic shop or whatever, and so I went up to the guy and I said, hey, is there a spot where I could fill up my back tire? And he's like, oh yeah, we'll do it for you. Why don't you just swing your car around? I was like, man, that is great. So I swing around, I pull up, and I get out, and uh, this 20-something comes over to me, and uh, he, I said, hey, I, I guess you could fill up my tire right here. Is that, is that true? And he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And then he looks at me and he goes, um, what PSI do your tires need? And a couple thoughts went through my head. The first thought was, like, I have that memorized. Okay. Second thought was, do I look like someone that has that memorized? <laughs> right? My, my third thought was, um, is this something everyone else has memorized? <laughs> and I'm the only one who doesn't? Like, I had all these, like, thoughts going through my mind, like, this is, this is bad news. So I said to him, I'm like, honestly, I have no clue. I, I didn't know I was going to be quizzed on this. It, like, I'm sorry. You, you're going to have to help me out. And so he, sa he goes, uh, just open your door. It's in, on the side of the door. And I go, shut up. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. It's just like, so I, I literally open the door, and it's right there on the side. Like, just stuck right there. It tells you the PSI for your tires. I had no clue. And I was like, how come no one tells you that when you get a car? <laughs> right? 
I mean, they tell you you got to change the oil. You kind of know that. You know that because you're like growing up and your dad was like, oh, I got to get the oil changed. But other than that, like, how come they don't tell you just look at the side of your door and it's going to tell you the PSI? Or how come they don't tell you the, the gas gauge? It's got a little arrow that tells you what side the tank is on, you know, and so you don't look like an idiot because you pull up and then you're like, oh, and then you drive around a couple more times, and right? How come they don't tell you that when you get the car? I think it's a mean little trick, actually, where they're like, well, they'll figure it out at some point, right? But here, here's the point of that. If you don't know the PSI in your tires, you might not have God quite figured out yet, right? There's still more to be learned. There's still more to be experienced about God. And part of the thrill of knowing someone is getting to know more of them. Shannon and I have been together for over 25 years now. We dated uh, for three years before we got married. And uh, there are times still where I will say something to her, and she will respond with something like, I never knew that about you, or uh, I didn't know that was part of your history, you know? And usually my response is something like, well, I'm still trying to keep it interesting, right? Or like, want to keep a little mystery in the relationship or something like that. Um, but she's saying, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I still didn't know that about you. Relationships, I think, are most healthy when there's this level of continued interest and wonder and learning, right? That if I stop seeking to learn more about Shannon, if I was just like, I got her mostly figured out, I'm not really concerned with the rest of it, right? At that point, it's probably pretty troubling, right? At that point, it's disconcerting a bit. Because what it's revealing is that there's th something in the relationship that no longer considers the other worthy of pursuit, worthy of understanding, worthy of knowing more. Now, you might have seasons where it feels that way. But for the large part, being someone who continues to pursue or understand or know your partner makes a lot of sense, right? That's what relationships are like. Tozer makes this statement about God. Over against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. A loving personality dominates the Bible, walking among the trees of the garden and breathing fragrance over every scene. Always a living person is present, speaking, pleading, loving, working, in manifesting himself whenever and wherever his people have the receptivity necessary to receive the manifestation. If you already knew all of God that you would ever know, why would you continue to pursue? If you already had him completely figured out, what would motivate you to continue to know him? There is this freedom that all of us are afforded to recognize that learning more and more about this God who's hard to get to know in his complexity and brilliance, it's liberating. That's not scary. There's freedom in that to know that we can continue to pursue and learn him. And the second freedom I think that the magnitude of God highlights is that you have the freedom to not speak on behalf of God. See, the magnitude of God gives you permission to not know everything about God. We've already stated, if I don't know my PSI, I probably don't know everything about God, 
right? Since you and I don't know everything about God and have not experienced all that God is, then we have the permission to not speak for him. Okay, and I think this is honestly a really important permission. Now, we are invited to speak about God. That is true. I think we are invited to share our experience of God. That is also true. But I think by general practice, we should probably make it a good idea to not seek to speak for God, not to determine someone else's experience of God or to declare what they should know that you know about God. To feel the freedom to not say this is who God is, or this is what I know that God wants for you. Perhaps just taking the posture that sounds a little bit more like this, this is who I have experienced God to be. Or, This is what the scriptures invite us into. Or this is what I've received from God and I'm seeking to live out. These are probably more appropriate postures when considering the magnitude of God. The reason I bring it up is I've been around religious people my whole life. One of the things that I found out pretty early about religion is religion makes you prideful. Religion makes you think that even just a small little part of knowing about the holy makes you able to declare everything about that holy. And I don't think it does. I think instead it should be the same posture with the first. This freedom to keep learning is probably the freedom to say, here's what I currently know. Here's what I've currently experienced. And here's what I still don't know. And here's what I still haven't experienced. And maybe you've experienced something different than I've experienced, and I'd love to hear about it. Because what you experienced of God could deeply inform me. That's a much different posture than, I don't know what you think, but here's what I think. And you're probably wrong about what you think. Way different. In fact, I think God kind of speaks into this with this passage when he says this. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? All rhetorical questions for not you and not me. Right? Even in Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have the understanding. The point would be, we have the freedom not to speak for God. But we can invite others to know him. Third, We have the freedom to know Jesus is the answer even when you don't know the question. Okay? Have you ever been in a moment where you were not even sure what question to ask? You were not even sure what feeling to feel. You felt kind of paralyzed, trapped, like unaware of what to do next, right? For some people, those are very fearful moments. But I think the magnitude of God gives you the freedom to know that Jesus is the answer regardless of the question. So there's this like assuredness that comes when you know that there is a great, magnificent, awesome God that even when you don't know the question, you know he's the answer. There's something that like gives me deep freedom for that. And, and I say that, and you know of me from our time together, that I hate church answers. I do. Because usually they're insulting to you. 
And what I mean by that is we give you like a little answer that is like, well, just remember this one thing and it'll solve all your problems, which is not individualized because each of you are experiencing something radically different about life and about God. But also it, it, it says that you don't really care enough to figure it out with us, that you don't care to want to know God in those same kind of ways. Now, I will say that for as much as I hate formulaic church answers, there is one formulaic church answer that I actually do like, and it is one that uh, is so true that anyone, I think, should figure out it's the key of all of the answers, and that is that it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So the answer to everything is Jesus. You probably have already heard this, but I'm going to tell you a story of a um, Sunday school teacher in like a little pre-K classroom in Kentucky. This story has circulated a lot throughout the history of the church, Um, but I'll say it anyway because it might remind you of something. So uh, this particular teacher was teaching a story on Noah's Ark and uh, was trying to get class participation from four and five-year-olds, and that always goes well. And so she was saying, okay, here's what we'll do. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to describe for you something that was on the ark, and then you're going to tell me what it is. And all the kids are like, okay, this is great. I love this. So she starts off, and she says, okay, see if you can help me identify this, okay? I'm furry with a bushy tail, and I like to climb trees. No answer. All the kids are just looking wondering. So then she's like, okay, I also like to eat nuts, especially acorns. No answer. Nothing. She's getting this look on her face like, I must be doing something wrong here. Okay, well, usually brown and gray, sometimes black, sometimes red, come in all these colors, like you see it around the park. No answer. So finally, (laughs) she's like, okay, I'm going to pick on this four-year-old who always answers all the questions. And um, so she's like, Michelle, or whatever her name was, um, what about you? What do you think it is? And the little girl says, well, I know the answer has to be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) Right? And and I, I bring that up because even if you've heard it before, I think there is something wildly profound about it that we tend to have these church answers that just become the pat answer that you just say that and it's over with, right? But this is the one church answer that I actually think matters. And Jesus says it of his own life over and over and over again when he says that if you're the person that needs direction, I am the way. If you're the person that is wondering and you're misguided, I am the truth, that if you are hopeless, I am the hope of the world, that if you're thirsty and you're longing for something, I'm living water, that if you're fatherless, I'm the father, if you're lonely, I'm a friend, like he goes over and over and over describing who he is to meet everybody's particular need, and he does it in a way that makes sense. To the blind man, he says, I am the light of the world, meaning I can give you eyes to see, To Mary and Martha, who just lost their brother, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say to them at that point, I'm the living water. He says the thing that matters the most to them in the moment because he's all things to all people at exactly the right time. And so I think it's important to know that the magnitude of God gives us freedom to know that Jesus is always the answer. Final one. 
I think the magnitude of God gives us the freedom to be less concerned with change because you are in relationship with the unchanging one. I had a conversation with my mom not long ago, and uh, I think all of you know this, I love my mom deeply. And she told me that uh, she was glad that she was not raising me in today's world. She's like, man, I feel bad for you raising kids in today's world. And so I was like, what do, you, what do you mean, Mom? Like, what is that? What are you saying? And she's like, well, I mean, the world is changing. I said, yeah, always has, actually. No different. And she's like, well, but today, I mean, um, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you know. And I don't know if she exactly said that. If she did, she probably said it in air quotes because hell is a bad word unless you use it in the Bible sense, right? Uh, which basically, if you don't know what the phrase the hell in a handbasket means, it means that, it, like, you're in some deep doo-doo. If it was my mom was saying it, right? Like, it's, it's bad. It, everything's heading downhill quickly. It's getting worse. Doom is on the horizon. The world is awful. So again, I said, well, can you tell me what you mean? And she's like, well, I mean, the world is getting worse and worse, more evil. Everyone's doing horrible stuff. There's religious persecution. And I'm like, what do you mean religious? Like, people are dying for their faith. Like, sexual freedom, sexual agendas. You know, she kind of stopped there. And I was like, well, okay, probably asylum seekers. Yeah, political agendas, sure. Like, I'm like adding fuel to the fire, right? The like, I want some brownie points. I'm raising kids in today's age. Might as well get as much brownie points from mom as possible. So but then I said to my mom, my mom, mom, just pause for a second. Have you read the Bible? Like, I mean, you raised me to read it, but as far as I'm concerned, like, there was Nero. He did exist, and he did throw Christians to lions. It, is anyone getting thrown to lions in Pennsylvania that I don't know about? Right? No. Now, is there persecution? Absolutely. Are there agendas? Sure. The world is changing, and often within the church, change equals fear. Change equals uncertainty, like, oh, no, no, no. want to keep it the same forever, right? The truth is, it's always been pretty crazy. I reminded my mom that she grew up or during the time of, like, Woodstock and stuff, like, Seems pretty crazy. If you read 1 Corinthians, seems sexually pretty crazy. There's a lot going on throughout the Old and New Testament that shows that the world might not be getting, like, horribly every day, worse and worse and worse and worse. Now, is there sin in the world? Unequivocally. Have we always sought to stray from God? Absolutely. Is it challenging, maybe, in a world of technology today that was different than you when we didn't even have computers or phones or whatever, and we dial up like you know you know like yeah sure maybe that's different but different doesn't necessarily mean crazy and the fundamental truth of the magnitude of God is this that in the midst of a changing dynamic culturally shifting customs going out the window world it's okay because we're tethered to the unchanging one we are tethered to the God of certainty we are tethered to knowing this fully unknowable God is in control of all of it. He even says this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. We didn't even highlight this, but like just one simple drop, all the nations. Right? He's saying that they're like the dust on the scales. 
Like when you go to measure something and you blow off the dust on the top, you don't even need to blow it off because it doesn't account for any of the value on the scale. That's everything. So a God that has that much magnitude, doesn't matter how changing this world is. Doesn't matter how changing your faith currently feels. Doesn't matter how changing the church seems to feel. Not just new community, but at large. All of that is within the context of this divine, magnificent, holy, other than us God. My encouragement to you is to live into those freedoms, but even more importantly, write some more freedoms of your own. As a small group, talk about it. The magnitude of God should give us more freedom to worship. What does that look like? The magnitude of God should give us more freedom for obedience. What does that look like? Magnitude of God should give us more freedom to extol the, the qualities of God to people around you. What does that look like? Etc., 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 right? If we don't become people that take a truth and actually allow it to migrate into our heart and then migrate into our hands and feet and our mouths, then we're not actually living the gospel. It's one thing to think we know the gospel. It's another thing to actually live it. So may we be people who practice it. Would you stand with me? Last week, uh, I read a benediction uh, that I put together that spoke to the magnitude of God or to the holiness of God. And this week, I've added a little bit to it. Next week, I'll add a little bit more. And all through the series of Isaiah, we will just add a couple phrases to the benediction. So that may this be our sending off or our blessing for the community as we leave. New community, as you leave today, remember who you are, a holy and treasured being fully loved by God. Remember that God is holy, glorious, unsettling, forgiving, inviting, full of divine magnitude, a God that affords us great freedom. God is with you and knows you. So go now in the power of our loving God. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.